Thanks for listening today to In 16 Years. I'm Amy, and this is a podcast where I talk about what I've learned in 16 years of living with endo, severe IBS, fibromyalgia, and interstitial cystitis. My name is Brittany, and I live with celiac disease, anxiety, and my own hormonal fun. We hope this show will inspire you, empower you, and help you feel supported on your own health journey. Brittany and I are not doctors, dietitians, mental health professionals, experts on endometriosis, or any kind of qualified medical professional. So that means that none of the information we share on this podcast is medical or mental health advice. If you get inspired by something we say, always consult your qualified medical professional first before making any changes. Just a reminder that my podcast is a platform for different voices and viewpoints, but each person's opinions are their own. Their appearance on my podcast doesn't mean that I'm endorsing them or their viewpoints. And remember, even when our guests are medical professionals, nothing on this podcast constitutes medical advice. It's with a heavy heart that I introduce this episode because, sadly, at the time of my saying this, Dr. David Redwine passed away just two days ago. Social media was flooded with heartfelt posts thanking him for the impact he'd had on that person, whether it was a fellow excision surgeon, an endo advocate, his patient, or a friend. Many of these posts were from people who'd, who'd never had a personal interaction with Dr. Redwine. And yet he had inspired or educated them through his videos, interviews, research, Facebook comments, presentations, surgical training, books, and more. Who is Dr. David Redwine to our endometriosis community? He was a world-renowned excision surgeon, a legend with decades of contributions to the endometriosis community. He was a surgical pioneer, not just one of the fathers of near-contact laparoscopy at a time when laparotomy was the norm, but also a fierce leader in the field of excision. His curious mind and forward thinking advanced our ideas about the disease. His research helped highlight flaws in the theory of retrograde menstruation as the cause of endometriosis and bring forth embryonic origin as a probable cause. His research helped surgeons understand the varied appearance of endometriosis and that black is not the most predominant color of lesions which is extremely important since surgeons need to recognize endometriosis in order to cut it out. Through Dr. David Redwine's 300-page report to the FDA called Luprolide, the D is silent, we learned that the published data on Lupron didn't always match the raw data, and the possibility that ovarian function may not always recover in patients who take Lupron. He combed through medical literature to write the book Googling Endometriosis, which is a comprehensive history of endo and its treatment from 1825 BC to 1899 AD. And this was just one of multiple books that he wrote on endometriosis. He also spent much of his free time in multiple Facebook groups, writing long answers to patients' questions, including my own. He was incredibly smart, and he never stopped advocating for endometriosis patients, even post-retirement. He was a giant whose shoulders this community stands on, who challenged long-held beliefs, who wasn't afraid to ruffle feathers or point out conflicts of interest in research. 
Dr. David Redwine left a profound impression on our community, and we've lost an important voice. Thank you, Dr. David Redwine. Your legacy will live on, and we will continue to fight every day for better care around the world. Hi, Dr. Redwine. Thank you so much for being here with us today. We are so excited that you took the time to come back on our podcast to talk about these really important topics related to endometriosis. Um, To start, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself, like who you are in a one or two minute rundown? Hi, uh, I'm David Redwine, and I had a 35-year career in Bend, Oregon, uh, focused primarily on endometriosis. And a lot of what I found and did has now spread around the world uh, to become a fairly standard treatment for the disease. Well, great. Well, welcome back to the show. Um, I just want to remind everyone that in episodes 67 and 68 of this podcast, we actually interviewed you. And we spoke about the following, which was your theory of embryonic origin of endometriosis, uh, why you consider Samson's theory of retrograde menstruation the most dangerous theory in the history of medicine, what endometriosis does in the body. Um, And then you talked about endometriosis treatments, excision surgery, and endometriosis recurrence. So I really want to encourage people to go back and listen to episodes 67 and 68 of this podcast because it is just so excellent and chock full of a lot of really vital insight and information on your part. Um, So in this episode, we're going to do our best not to repeat those topics, but to touch on new topics. So to start, I wanted to ask you about what you said, which is the sins of the endometriosis literature. And one of these sins that you said was the, quote, attempt to support Samson's theory of reflux menstruation at all costs, despite the absence of evidence for initial attachment, end quote. Um, So I want to ask you some questions about that just so that people can follow along, though, if they don't know what the reflux menstruation theory is um, and the lack of initial attachment. Could you give us a quick rundown of that? Well, the theory of reflux menstruation says that each month with a menstrual flow, instead of all the blood coming out through the cervix into the vagina, some of the blood goes out in reverse, out the fallopian tubes and kind of drips into the pelvis where cells from the sloughed endometrial lining come to attach to the peritoneal surfaces where they proliferate and invade and become endometriosis. And then the next month, more cells come out and puddle and are supposed to form endometriosis. So that's the origin of endometriosis by the theory of reflux menstruation in a nutshell. Yeah, and that theory also goes by retrograde menstruation, um, so reflux or retrograde menstruation. And it's also known as Samson's theory. So tell us for a minute about the lack of the initial attachment that is so important. The cells that are involved in menstruation, there's three main kinds of cells. One is the red blood cell, of course. That's what makes the menstrual flow red. Other cells that come out are the stromal cells, which are two to three times the diameter of a red blood cell. And then the taller columnar cells, which come out. So if a red blood cell is eight microns in diameter, A stromal cell could be 
30 microns in diameter, while the taller glandular cell could be 50 to 75 microns in diameter. When you consider that a capillary is 10 microns in diameter to accommodate the 8 micron red blood cell, uh, it's clear that the cells that are involved with reflux menstruation, the stromal cells and the glandular cells, are too big to enter blood vessels uh, at the level of the uterus. They're actually fairly large cells as cells go. When you hold a human hair at arm's length, you can see the hair and it's only 100 microns in diameter. So in other words, it's 12 times the diameter of a red blood cell. So a glandular cell could be about half the diameter of a human hair. So in other words, you can see a human hair easily. You can, that means you can almost see the larger of the two kinds of cells that form so-called reflux menstruation. Uh, and of course, the cell, there's gonna be more than one cell of each type. Theoretically, there would be tens or thousands coming out with each menstrual flow in uh, patients subject to that kind of occurrence. So the point is these cells are pretty big. Uh, when you consider uh, that, you know, 10% of female population has endometriosis, and you consider all the menstrual flows that have occurred over the centuries, and all the billions of red blood cells and stromal cells and glandular cells that have been refluxed perhaps into the pelvis, you would think that by now in 2023, our textbooks would be filled with photomicrographs of each step. Here's step one, initial attachment of the cell to the peritoneal surface. Here's step two, that cell begins to proliferate and invade. Uh, and then step three, here's endometriosis. We got plenty of pictures of step three endometriosis. We don't have any convincing pictures of step one and two of a process that is supposed to be occurring by the billions around the world. So, um, and, and the cells are too big. It is impossible to miss this process if it existed. The cells are too big. Human visual acuity almost has the ability to see a single glandular cell under ideal circumstances. So this is not something that's too small to detect. The reason there is no evidence, and when I say evidence, I'm talking about pictures taken through a regular light microscope. These cells are not too small to use an electron microscope. So there should be thousands of pictures uh, taken through the microscope. And we don't have any. So um, that whole process is a fantasy. And um, it, it, it just, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to, to figure out that this just is a fantasy. It's impossible. It, it's impossible to miss this process if it occurred. People have looked for it. I've looked for it. I did not find it. We can see, you know, scientists can see the spikes on COVID. Uh, which is very, very tiny, probably a thousandth of a nanometer. At the other end of the spectrum, we can see the remnants of supernova SN1572 that Tycho Brahe saw explode. And it's 41.7 quadrillion kilometers, you know, uh, in diameter. So 
science can can visualize from the very small to the very large, but there is this unusual spectrum between about um, 15 microns and 100 microns, the thickness of a human hair, where it is impossible, it is impossible to visualize anything in that spectrum. And that's what we're supposed to believe about reflux menstruation, that it, you know, that part of the spectrum of vision cannot be photographed. Well, the reason it can't be photographed is because it doesn't exist, it doesn't occur. And as I say to supporters of Samson theory, I just say, fine, show me the pictures. Thank you so much for your detailed explanation about the lack of the photos of initial attachment with Samson's theory. Um, and at the end, I just want to clarify that you were really dripping with sarcasm there when you were saying that, you know, for everything that the human can see with like the microscopes and the tools that we have, how interesting and ironic that for some reason we just can't seem to pick up step one and step two of where the cells, the, you know, this loft endometrial cells come out of the fallopian tube, which is a real thing. Menst retrograde menstruation is a real thing that happens in menstruators. But then it comes out, supposedly it attaches to the surface of the peritoneum and then it invades and then it proliferates or like, you know, starts multiplying. And we just do not have any pictures or proof of step one and two. What we do have is proof of endometriosis, but not proof of how retrograde cells become endometriosis. Um, so I think that is really compelling. I know in the last episodes we did together, we talked about a lot more reasons why retrograde menstruation as the origin theory of endometriosis just does not fit, does not make sense, you know, uh, seems impossible uh, to ever be proven to ever be the cause of endometriosis. So I want to ask you, what do you think? So a lot of people who, you know, support Samson's theory have come to the realization like, okay, it's true. Retrograde menstruation cannot be the singular cause of endometriosis or it doesn't work for these, you know, in these specific cases. But if we add these additions to Samson's theory, to the retrograde menstruation theory, then retrograde menstruation would be a viable theory. So what do you think about some of these things like the idea of lymphatic spread of endometriosis, um, neonatal uterine bleeding, a faulty immune system, and that's why the retrograde cells take hold in endometriosis patients, but not the other 80% of menstruators. What do you think of this? Well, these are all just kind of epifantasies on top of the main fantasy. Uh, let's kind of start with the last thing that I can remember you said, and that was immune system uh, weakness in patients who are prone to develop endometriosis versus the immune system competence and vigor in patients who don't develop endometriosis. So just as there are no photomicrographic pictures of steps, you know, one, two, and three, attachment, proliferation, invasion, there are no photomicrographs showing this immunological warfare that is supposed to be occurring in the pelvis of uh, patients who are not going to develop endometriosis. If they are postulating this kind of peritoneal warfare, I say the same thing about reflex menstruation. Show me the pictures. If there's immunologic warfare going on with, you know, uh, 
lots of white blood cells killing lots of something else, you know, we need to see pictures of it, not just talk. But that's the thing. Uh, supporters of Samson Siri, you know, kind of cobble together uh, a, a possible explanation here with a possible explanation over there. And everything wobbles and uh, it eventually will collapse. It's collapsing now. Neonatal uterine bleeding. Neonatal uterine bleeding uh, is a crutch, a very unusual crutch applied to Samson's theory, which was taught as occurring in adults. But, you know, in, in, a, in a subtle sense, neonatal uh, or prenatal uterine bleeding is an admission that there is no evidence of attachment proliferation and invasion in adults. And so it, it, it's kind of a last gasp effort, uh, grasping at a straw while Samson series is going under to say, well, the reason you don't see evidence is because it occurs over here when uh, the you know, female fetus is in utero. Okay, well, you're going in the right direction. You're going you know, back towards the embryo if, you, if they would just allow themselves to see that. And the, the, the fact that, you know, they, they try to now shift, you know, the, the need for focus onto the fetus, you know, it's like how many, how many layers of uh, props do we need to prop up this theory? Uh, it, it needs to have collapsed long ago. Yeah, and I'll just jump in and say that neonatal uterine bleeding is when, is it when the, what is it? Can you tell it's, us? It's prenatal. Prenatal uterine bleeding is where a female fetus is responding to the estrogen level uh, of the mother, which can go across the placenta. Uh, and just as in an adult, the fetal uh, endometrial lining of the uterus can proliferate and do a little bit of bleeding. And so proponents of reflux menstruation as the origin of endometriosis have now moved, since they can't find evidence in adults or children, they're now moving into the fetus uh, to say, oh, this process can occur. And yes, it can, but it's kind of uncommon. Uh, and this is where endometriosis comes from. Retreat into the fetus uh, is basically an admission of failure uh, of the theory. But people who propose this won't uh, ever understand that point. And the last one was lymphatic spread. Spread of endometriosis through a lymph channel would, would encounter the same problem of endometriosis going through a capillary. A lymph channel is really no bigger than a capillary, and uh, there's no evidence that uh, endometrium or endometrial cells you know, enter the lymphatics. The only evidence we have of that whole system is a few pictures of lymph nodes with lymph nodes with small islands of endometriosis adjacent to larger intestinal nodules of endometriosis. So, you know, there's no evidence that the endometriosis came from the nodule to the uh, lymph node. Uh, basically, lymph node endometriosis is just one of the embryonic patterns that can be seen uh, with endometriosis. Yeah, thank you so much for explaining that. I think it's so important to continue talking about the 
evidence that is stacked against retrograde menstruation and the reason why, and you put this so eloquently in a quote that you had, but you basically said that it's more than an academic question. If the origin of the disease is thought to be reflux menstruation, then stopping the menstrual flow becomes the goal. And I think we see that with a lot of treatments nowadays is let's stop the menstrual flow. Let's put the person in medical menopause. Let's have a hysterectomy to get that uterus out. But like you said in this, uh, in some of your publications, if the origin of the disease is thought to be genetically dictated pattern tracts of tissue laid down during embryonic development, then the removal of, of the tissue tracts becomes the goal, right? And so that's what excision surgeons do is they remove the disease at the root via surgery. So these aren't just academic theoretical questions that are under debate. This is a very real critical information that is directly influencing patients' lives and patients' suffering and the poor standard of care that we have today. I'll say amen to that. You've expressed it very well. I, I can't do any better. Well, I was reading from a publication that you wrote, so you can say amen to yourself. Okay. <laughs> so let's talk about the recent research that came out with Horvath's pan tissue clock and the origin of endometriosis. Well, I was... Um put onto this paper by uh, somebody from Facebook and uh, read about it. And basically it describes how our DNA, you know, just as our face gets facial wrinkles and something happens here and something happens there in our body with the passage of time, so too changes occur in our DNA. And one of the kind of simple chemical things that happens is called methylation where methyl bonds can form from one DNA strand to another. And this can actually physically alter the structure of DNA, which can affect its replication. It doesn't change the sequence of the codons of the you know, genetic segments, uh, the way gene splicing and editing can do, but um, it, it physically can rearrange the DNA and uh, lead to problems. Anyway, Methylation is something that turns out kind of just also occurs with the passage of time, not necessarily related to disease. Uh, and so people who have looked at it have determined that, well, gee whiz, at the age of one, here's how much methylation there is. At the age of 10, here's how much methylation there is and, and so on. So DNA accumulates methyl, methylation changes with the passage of time. And the, the Horvath clock uh, is about plus or minus five years from actual chronologic time. So it's kind of not a not inaccurate timekeeper. It's pretty good. Well, uh, they investigated um, endometriosis tissue from ovarian endometrioma cyst, and they looked at the degree of methylation uh, associated with the ovarian endometrioma versus uh, tissue from elsewhere in the pelvis or elsewhere in the body. I'm not sure where. And they found that the um, Horvath clock of the ovarian endometrioma was 16 years younger than the clock of the rest of the body. And, you know, so in a sense, it's like, okay, well, 
endometriosis is different from endometrium or the rest of the body. We've known stuff like that for decades that endometriosis is not like endometrium. And, you know, this is just kind of another, really at one level, this is another of those findings. Yeah, the Horvath's clock is different in endometriosis versus the endometrium. Okay. But the uh, authors finally, bravo, said this can't be due to reflux menstruation. This must be developmental, which is code word for it develops during embryonic formation. They didn't go into a full on genetic slash embryonic slash embryology 101 discussion, but just simply with that single sentence, this can't be due to reflux menstruation because the cells all should be kind of in the same Horvath clock. It was good to see because and other tissue in the pelvis needs to be examined. But the, the real breakthrough was that somebody was finally not blaming something on uh, reflux menstruation. I thought that was a significant thing. Yeah, so as you said, the age of the ovarian endometriosis tissue was um, about 16 years younger than the tissue lining the uterus. And then, like you said, the the difference, so like the clock, the, the range of error of the clock, the 17 years is outside of the range of error of the clock. Yeah, I think it's just great that more and more research is pointing to new reason. Well, not new because you've been talking about this for like, you know, 40 years. And um, of course, scientists and researchers before you were talking about embryonic origin, you know, being born with endometriosis. But it's just really good that research is coming out in different fields and different different studies are coming out to further reiterate that endometriosis is not the endometrium. The two tissues are not the same. And all of this continues to stack against retrograde menstruation. And we will see when the medical community lets go of this as the main theory of endometriosis as they have it now. So I want to move on to talk about Lupron. Uh, one of the claims on the Lupron website is that it is, quote, used for the management of endometriosis, including pain relief and reduction of endometriotic lesions. Now, we know that endometriosis, when a person takes Lupron, Lupron does not shrink the disease. Lupron does not remove the disease. Um, can you talk a little bit about your findings when you you were given access to the raw data of Lupron when you were the medical witness, the expert medical witness in a lawsuit, I think in 2011, um, and then you went ahead and you wrote up a 300-page report to the FDA called Luprolide, the D is silent. Um, and you talked about the study that was done to show that Lupron reduces the lesion size. And you talked about flaws in that study in the specificity and timing. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, I'll try to remember some of what I might have said. Uh, the You're right about Lupron and no other medicine makes endometriosis go away. It can quiet the disease down, you know, during treatment. What does that mean? Well, if you think of the endometriosis uh, glands and stroma, the glands are secreting something. We don't know what it secretes, actually. 
but those secretions likely leach out away from the endometriosis gland stroma complex and can go over here and destabilize this capillary over here or leach out over there and irritate a nerve. Uh, and so, or reach out in the other direction and cause uh, inflammation and scarring to occur. So a lot of the changes that you see with endometriosis are due to endometriosis, but they are not the endometriosis itself. And one of the chief changes that can occur is the destabilization of adjacent capillaries uh, with adjacent bleeding. It's not the endometriosis itself that's bleeding, it's that the endometriosis secreted something that destabilizes that capillary over there. Okay, so here comes along birth control pills or Lupron or Danazol or whatever to put the ovaries to sleep. With luck, the um, cyclic stimulation of the gland stroma complex uh, ceases. The leaching of irritative fluid through the tissue stops. The capillary is no longer inflamed and bleeding, and so it heals. And so it's like the body has cleaned up the inflammation because the uh, leaching from the gland is stopped. If you go in at the end of ovarian suppression therapy, whether birth control pills or Lupron, if you go in when the ovaries are still asleep, uh, they haven't had time yet to kind of reawaken and then stimulate the endometriosis to produce this leaching substance that will once again start destabilizing capillaries. You didn't see it because you went in too early. So when you go in too early, right when the ovaries are still asleep versus three or four months later, uh, the, the findings can be totally different. And that was born out long ago, gosh, in 1987 by a study by Johann Evers. Uh, and it was titled, A Second Look Laparoscopy Should Not Be Done During Ovarian Suppression. He tried to you know, relay the direct findings in the title, which is somewhat unusual, but it, uh, it really came through in that article. And so another thing that I found in just reviewing, you, you were talking about, you know, pain and such. Another thing that I found was that in several of the uh, articles, 50% of the patients still had to take narcotics while on Lupron therapy, uh, which is kind of astounding. I mean, it's like, gosh, is this like a crapshoot, you know? And people, you know, if people still have to take narcotics, what is it really doing? And then if they stop it and the disease is still there and it's re-stimulated by uh, ovarian secretion of estrogen, you know, what have you accomplished other than making some money? It's very frustrating because a lot of endometriosis patients are told that Lupron is going to clean up their disease. It's going to, you know, reduce the lesions that they have but we know that this isn't true. And I also think it's it's very difficult to argue that with your physician when, you know, it's literally stated on the Lupron website. And I think that's so important to understand why some of these studies, um, not just um, in this particular case with Lupron, but just in general, the breakdown of different studies, the flaws in the studies, because, you know, as you said, in the case of this Lupron study, if as they went in and they looked at the visual presentation of the disease three months after 
the person went off Lupron, the the visual changes associated with endometriosis, like you said, the adjacent capillary bleeding, um, the swelling, things like that, those may be quieted, those may be regress during the treatment. But then as the drug wears off, the endometriosis, you know, that swelling can come back, the disease can get more visually have the visual changes again, you know, look more like this active endometriosis. And then all that's done is that the, the endometriosis visually changed, but it didn't actually do anything for the endometriosis itself. And what I find really interesting is that a lot of excision surgeons, they want their patient to be off of GnRH drugs for at least a couple of months prior to surgery to make sure that they can excise all of the disease so that the disease is not, you know, the visual changes haven't made certain lesions too subtle to see because they are, you know, in this quieted state due to the drug. I want to congratulate you on your explanation of things. I mean, it's clear that you have understood what I've been saying. Thank you. You're welcome. It's all your words anyway. Um, some surgeons tell their patients that they removed all of their endometriosis. They excised all the endometriosis. And then the patient comes back and they're like, well, I'm still in pain. And then some of these doctors say, oh, well, you know, it must be microscopic endometriosis. Can you tell us a little bit about microscopic endometriosis? Does it exist? I know that you've um, written different research papers on it. So what were your findings? Microscopic endometriosis, uh, the concept has been around for a long time. I was exposed to it many decades ago, and it intrigued me uh, as something that I could investigate quite simply in my private practice. And so uh, basically what it, the studies that I published were simple uh, in patients who, and they were all aware that I was going to be taking a tiny sample of normal peritoneum that I wouldn't necessarily otherwise take. But the the studies involved going in and finding peritoneum that was entirely normal. And I had five criteria of normality, no overlying discoloration, no you know, coloration changes like whitish or reddish, no um, rough speckled areas. I mean, it, you know, it's got to be transparent. I mean, you know, there were five, five criteria that I had. And so however many patients there were, there were several dozen. And these were all patients that had endometriosis elsewhere in their pelvis. And so when I found an area that looked normal, I said to myself, okay, it's normal by my five criteria, so I'm gonna send it to the lab as the study specimen for this patient. And then I went ahead and excised all the other endometriosis as planned. And so um, out of however many dozen that we sent to the lab, only one of these samples came back with uh, a few cells that looked like glandular cells, well, not glandular cells, but it looked like a gland um, made of low cells. So it wasn't endometriosis by any means. And that, but that was the closest that we got to anything that could arguably be said to be endometriosis. So basically what that found is, is that, you know, I looked for microscopic endometriosis in areas of normal peritoneum, I could see the endometriosis, it was already there. I'm not after that. That's not microscopic because I can see it. 
So in these patients who have endometriosis elsewhere in the pelvis, this should be a population of patients that has microscopic endometriosis too. Well, I looked for it in several dozen patients and didn't find it in a single one. So my conclusion uh, is that so-called invisible microscopic endometriosis does not exist. And the reason it doesn't exist is uh, related to the size of the cells that we discussed earlier. Red blood cell is eight microns, a stromal cell is 30 microns, a uh, glandular cell is 75 microns. Uh, these are not small cells. I, I would not have missed them, you know, with this biopsy technique dozens and dozens of times if it was a real thing. Hearing you talk about your five criteria for normal peritoneum, I think is, you know, it really highlights the fact that it's so important that the excision surgeon have that insight and that experience in recognizing endometriosis. I think a lot of endometriosis can go missed. Um, by less skilled excision surgeons because a lot of times they're just maybe not sure what endometriosis looks like or they don't have this criteria to differentiate between a normal peritoneum and an abnormal peritoneum. I know Dr. Sinervo did a study and he, in this, in this study with his colleagues, like they excised all the tissue that didn't look like endometriosis per se, but also didn't meet their criteria for normal peritoneum. And I think it was something like one third of that abnormal tissue came back with endometriosis. Um, so having an idea of what is a normal peritoneum is really important because tissue may not look like endometriosis, like the typical appearance. Um, but like you said, if there's like, you know, hiding of blood vessels or, you know, clear palpals or, or whatever else, you know, as you would consider not normal excising that is really important, not just leaving that in there. Let's move on to my next question. In February 2022, the European Society of Human Reproduction and Embryology, or the ISHER, as I call it, which I may not be pronouncing that correctly, um, they released updated endometriosis guidelines. And in these guidelines, they stated that, quote, laparoscopy is no longer the diagnostic gold standard and is now only recommended in patients with negative imaging results and or where empirical treatment was unsuccessful or inappropriate, end quote. What do you think about these guidelines? A gold standard in anything, particularly in medicine, means this is the best that we have for this purpose. When you read the ESHRI, it's pronounced ESHRI guidelines, it says, Laparoscopy is no longer the gold standard for diagnosis of endometriosis. Am I correct? I am correct. Yes. Okay. When you consider that we're talking about the diagnosis of endometriosis, let's talk about what, you know, laparoscopy can find versus what the MRI and, you know, roboticists, you know, want to find. Laparoscopy can find virtually all superficial and all deep endometriosis. So it's sensitivity and specificity approach 100%. When you look at MRIs, which are being promoted by the ESRI guidelines, MRIs, as we know, are gonna find, you know, only deep endometriosis. And 
MRIs can miss up to 20% of deep endometriosis. And MRIs will miss 100% of superficial endometriosis. And since most patients with endometriosis don't have deep disease, MRIs are going to miss, would miss most cases of endometriosis because most cases are not deep. So uh, you have a, and we're talking about the first sentence now, the diagnosis. You have one diagnostic method that approaches 100% you know, uh, accuracy compared to another uh, diagnostic uh, apparatus that probably uh, has about a 25 to 30% accuracy. Uh, when you look at the entire population, um, the accuracy may go up if you look at the deep endometriosis population, but they're missing all the people with superficial disease. So on a just a English grammar standpoint, the sentence is incorrect. Laparoscopy is and for the near future will remain the gold standard for diagnosis because it diagnoses nearly 100% of all endometriosis compared to probably less than 25% by MRI. And, you know, if you were to take that out, that first sentence out, the ESRI guidelines are really, you know, kind of unchanged from other people's previous guidelines. I mean, it's kind of common sense uh, stuff otherwise. I think when those guidelines came out, there were some people, well, there are some people I think who to approve of these new guidelines around diagnosis, um, because for some people, they don't want to do a surgery to get diagnosed uh, for endometriosis you know, or they can't access a laparoscopy surgery to get diagnosed with endometriosis. Um, but as you say, using scans, whether that's MRI or ultrasound, that cannot pick up all forms of the disease. And I think one of the main concerns, at least a concern that I have, is that there are a lot of doctors, you know, regular gynecologists who are uneducated about this fact, um, you know, who believe that their scan is going to pick up all endometriosis or who maybe know that their scan isn't going to pick up all endometriosis, but then if the patient, you know, if endometriosis is not seen on their scan, let's say they the scan doesn't seem to show any signs of endometriomas or deep disease, then the patient is often told, well, your, you know, your endo is just superficial or it's not such a severe case. So, you know, you don't need excision for that. You can just go on the hormone hamster wheel. Um, so I feel like there's a, a lot of room for error and misinterpretation uh, with these guidelines. Um, at the same time, what do you think about the fact that when it comes to diagnosing endometriosis, whether that's diagnostic laparoscopy or ultrasounds, MRI scans, um, you know, the expertise of the individual doing using the diagnostic tool is really important. So whether that's the expertise of the individual reading the scans or the expertise of the person doing the diagnostic laparoscopy, um, I think there's also a, a problem, and this happened to me, that the first diagnostic laparoscopy that I had, they supposedly didn't find endometriosis. And that set back my diagnosis by probably a decade. Can you comment on that? Obviously, the more cases of endometriosis that one does, the more experience they have and the better, presumably, they get. 
Not all gynecologists are committed to gynecology. Some of them, I don't know how many, may still do obstetrics. And so they've got one foot in each camp. And one thing that I found with endometriosis is, is that I could not do obstetrics and continue to do uh, and try to do endometriosis surgery. It just wouldn't work. Uh, you know, sometimes uh, that can keep the experience level uh, from going up in some doctors and they, they, they feel unable to, to do, you know, adequate surgery, but at least they can make an accurate diagnosis and take a few biopsies. They don't necessarily need to know how to do complete obliteration of the cul-de-sac and other things like that, but they, everybody needs to know how to make a good examination of the pelvis, take appropriate biopsies. You don't have to try to treat stuff, but please help the next doctor, you know, in telling the patient what might be done. So, um, you know, I, I have no idea what uh, the skill level is of residents coming out of training. Um, I had barely enough, but I was able to figure stuff out on my own. You know, it's, it's a process that obstetrics will interfere with. So recently you wrote on a Facebook post about what had and hadn't changed in endometriosis in 54 years of care. Um, from, I think, 1969 until the current day, 2023, um, which is how long you've been involved with the endometriosis community. So can you tell us about an area of progress in endometriosis that excites you? And then conversely, can you talk about an area of stagnation in endometriosis that disappoints you? The, one of the main ways the endometriosis field has changed uh, is that there are more doctors, more surgeons around the world doing good endometriosis surgery. And by that, uh, I mean, there's probably dozens, uh, if not a few hundred. So that is a difference. And likewise, these doctors frequently have set up their own endometriosis treatment centers, you know, with the name endometriosis on the side of the building. So uh, there are more dedicated centers for the surgical treatment of endometriosis, which really is, we know that excision is the best treatment for any patient of any age with any symptom due to endometriosis. And so, you know, this proliferation of excision centers is one of the good things that's occurred. The other thing that is good uh, that we touched on earlier is there's going to be more progress in the genetic slash embryonic direction. So that'll be, that'll be interesting to watch. Uh, it'll also a sideshow that will be interesting to watch is to see how or when, you know, various doctors or groups say, well, okay, Samson Syria is not the origin of endometriosis. I mean, when will people start abandoning Samson's theory? So kind of keep your eye out on that. Um, uh, that will give you an idea about whether the person you're in front of really knows about endometriosis or is just doing what other people tell them to do. Things that are disappointing uh, are just that. Uh, Samson's theory, uh, the popularity of Samson's theory continues to be uh, one of the major things keeping progress back in terms of endometriosis. 
it directs too much time and energy and money and careers into a what's basically a dead-end street. Yes, uh, when you consider the time and money and energy that's gone into Samson's theory over the decades, that all that money and energy in the future could be directed down a more likely pathway, which is genetics and embryology. I hope so. And I really hope that that leads to innovative treatments for endometriosis, at least management options, if not actual treatments for the disease, because, you know, as we know, excision surgery is extremely inaccessible to the worldwide population. And unfortunately, the options that we have to try to manage our symptoms um, typically are either painkillers or hormones. And a lot of people just do not tolerate hormones. Um, so I would just love to see, you know, like one excision being embraced and becoming more accessible to more people worldwide. Um, and two, management options for people with endometriosis to manage their symptoms that don't have anything to do with hormones. Um, so Dr. Redwine, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for talking about such a huge variety of topics, um, really clarifying some of these, you know, major questions and topics people have about endometriosis. Also, I think on behalf of all of the listeners, we just really, really want to thank you for your involvement in the endometriosis community for 54 years. You know, you are uh, retired now, I think for like 12 years now. Um, does it astound you just like how many personal details I know about you, by the way? You know, you've been retired for over a decade and you are still such a strong voice in our endometriosis, in our endometriosis community. You're still such a strong advocate. You're still a, a mentor and, you know, a teacher to so many, whether that's patients or excision surgeons alike. So I just really want to thank you not only for all of your years of, you know, doing excision on endometriosis patients, but also just fighting for us and doing research and having a curious mind and not conforming to like what people say endometriosis is or, you know, not conforming to the ACOG guidelines, but really taking the initiative to critically think and research and debate and talk about these topics. And you have done so much in moving forward the needle of endometriosis advocacy and in our community. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. <laughs>